Okay, good afternoon. Uh, I was teaching in Dallas, Texas at a reform uh, temple somewhere down there, and uh, a guy kept asking me questions about the Bible. That's American for Bible. And uh, I said, the Bible say is this, the Bible say is that. And I said to him, uh, look, uh, I'm an Orthodox rabbi. Uh, it's not really that relevant to ask me questions about the Bible, because Orthodox Jews don't believe in the Bible. And he said, what, what are you talking about? How could you say that? I said, very simple. I said, what we believe in is called Torah. Now, Torah consists of the Torah, the Prophets, the Writings, the Medrash Rabbah, Medrash Tanchuma, the Sifri, the Sifra, the Mishnah, the Zohar, the Gemari, your Bavli, your Shalmi, etc., etc. I said, what you see of Torah in your literal translation of the Bible is the tip of the Goldberg, I'm sorry, iceberg of Judaism, and the vast bulk of it is actually beneath the surface. So, you, I'm sure, are aware of the vastness of what we call Torah Shabal Peh, the oral law, although nowadays most of it's written down, what I'd like to address is three questions. Question number one, why do we need it? Why can't we just open up the Torah, read it, do what it says? Why do the rabbis have to complicate things? Right? We open up a book of the Torah, the thumb starts twitching, and immediately we've got like, woo, it's expanded all over the place. So why can't we just open it up, read it like they do with Sunday morning television, right? And, uh, you probably don't know what that is, but okay, and, uh, just to open it up and read it and do what it says. That is question number one. Question number two is, having established that we do need an oral tradition, why should it be oral? Why not write it down? If you've ever been involved in a contract, if someone's ever lent you money or whatever it is, and you don't write it down, you can say goodbye. Right? If you're writing it down, just ensures that things will be accurate and things will, it's, isn't that a more efficient way of doing it? Why transmit it verbally? Doesn't make sense. That's second question. Question number three is, okay, let's establish, we've established that we need it. We've established why it's not written down. But if it's not written down, then we have a third question, which is, maybe it was distorted. How do we know it was transmitted accurately? If it's going word, you know, uh, uh, sorry, mouth to mouth, if it's going by, by word, verbally transmitted, you know how rumors get, uh, get distorted, all that type of stuff. So maybe it got distorted. Those are the three basic questions I'd like to answer. Let's start with number one. First of all, uh, the written Torah. If you look at the Torah itself, look at the Torah scroll, what you'll see is that it's, well, obviously Hebrew, but as you probably know, Hebrew and Hawaiian almost exact opposites. That goes without saying. I'll explain it anyway. Hawaiian is almost all vowels, oh, that type of stuff. right? Hebrew is almost all consonants. Where do you get the vowel sounds from in Hebrew? How do you know if something's oh, ooh, etc., etc.? The answer is from what we call nukudot, the dots. The dots were developed much, much later than the Torah. How do you know how to read the Torah? You have a word like chet lamed base. How would you read chet lamed base? Chelev or chalav. Well, it makes a big difference. Because when the Pasuk says, when the verse says, kol chet lamed beit lo tochelu, would you read that as, don't eat any milk? Right, prohibition against dairy foods. Granted, Jews are lactose intolerant, very high. But nevertheless, that's not that's not the prohibition. There, the Torah refers to chalev, which is actually a forbidden fat, which is around the loins and kidneys of an animal. On the other hand, a few chapters later, when it says, we actually read it last week, when it says, lot of ashel gadid, don't cook a kid, it's a goat, don't cook meat, but chet lamed beit, there it refers to chalev, which means milk of its mother. If you'd read it the other way, don't cook a kid in its mother's fat, he'd have a prohibition against deep frying to say goodbye to the yeshiva's cuisine. Right? Uh, so there is an idea that you have to know how to pronounce it. There's a word, yud resh alaf hay. How do you pronounce yud resh alaf hay? Yira, which means fear. How else can you pronounce that? Yira, which means he will see. How else? Yerah, he will be seen. Yorah, he will show. So obviously that makes a big difference in how you understand it. It says if a person is impure, they must immerse themselves. It says the rachatz et besaro bamayim. How would you translate that? He shall wash himself in water. Not correct. Batmayim does not mean in water. What? How would you correctly translate batmayim? Hmm? In the water. In Hebrew, if it's but mayim, it would mean in water. But mayim would be in the water. There's a big difference. If it says, 
And the person who's impure shall purify, wash themselves in water. That could mean anything. Jacuzzi, swimming pool, etc. Right? If it says the water, then the Torah has something very specific in mind, which we know means the mikveh. So, again, how you pronounce it, very, very central. And if you look at the Torah, you don't know how to pronounce it unless you've heard someone else pronounce it. So really, that is part of the oral tradition. When we talk about the Torah Shabbat, the oral tradition, part, a big section of that is, how do you read the Torah? When the Christians, the Muslims, etc., when they mistranslate, quote, misquote, etc., our Torah, the fact of the matter is, they're relying on our pronunciation, our oral tradition, in order to know how to pronounce the original Hebrew. Secondly, 1C, the Torah has no punctuation. You look in a Torah scroll, Hebrew has no punctuation. The Torah scroll has no punctuation. Punctuation is incredibly important to understand what things mean. Uh, I bought a book not long ago, about two years ago. It's called uh, Eats, Shoots and Leaves. Anyone seen that book? It's a book on English punctuation. I can't imagine you'd do it for recreational reading. right? But uh, Eats, Shoots and Leaves has a picture of a panda on a ladder. And it says Eats, Shoots and Leaves on the front page. And the panda is erasing a comma after the word eats. Why is the panda erasing the comma after the word eats? Eats, shoots and leaves. He's erasing the comma. Why is he erasing the comma? Well, because you see, if it says eats, comma, shoots and leaves, it is basically making, slandering the entire world of the panda community. What it's saying is the panda eats, comma, shoots, bam, right, and, and leaves. Right? If you erase the comma, what is it saying? A panda eats shoots, which are small pieces of bamboo, and leaves, which are large green things. Okay, So it's a big difference as to whether there's a comma or not. Punctuation makes a difference. I remember uh, hearing uh, that there was a telegram, Russia, it's a Russian joke, it's not that funny. Uh, so anyway, but um, uh, a telegram was received by Stalin, Stalin who... Uh, uh, the great, the you know, evil dictator of Russia. So uh, his, uh, one of his great enemies, he had many, about three billion, right? So one of his enemies was a guy by the name of Trotsky. So Trotsky, so apparently Stalin gets a telegram from Trotsky and he reads it out at a communist party meeting and he reads it out and he says, I just got a telegram from my greatest enemy that says that I am right. And he reads out the telegram and says, Dear Stalin, I was wrong, you were right. I should apologise Trotsky. So everyone claps because they don't want to die, right? Uh, and then a Jew in the audience says, uh, can I please read the telegram with greater emotion, comrade? Stalin says, certainly. The Jew comes up, picks up the telegram and reads it. Dear Stalin, I was wrong! You were right! I should apologise! Trotsky. Which is a, it's a slight difference as to where you put the emphasis as to what the telegram is saying. Will this be an instant death sentence for Trotsky, which in fact was, or is it a reconciliation? My daughter pointed out a sign in New Jersey on the road that said, fine for littering. She said, that's a strange sign. So, in any case, uh, we were once swimming in Angedi in Israel, uh, in one of the, before it got polluted, we were swimming in Angedi, security guard comes over and he says, you can't swim here. I said, why not? He says, can't you read the sign? The sign says, no swimming allowed. I said, that's how you read it? I read it differently. No! Swimming allowed. So uh, where you put your commas and punctuation is very, very vital. How do we know the punctuation in the Torah? Where do you get punctuation from in the Torah? Anyone know? Well, when you go to shul, where do you hear the Torah being read? No. Well, it depends on the shul. Some shuls you cannot hear the Torah being read. But usually, someone asked me how many people dive in my shul. I said, oh, about 5%. But anyway, uh, the, uh, the, uh, when you actually hear the Torah, explain it to your friends afterwards, please. Anyway, but when you hear the Torah being read, you actually hear it being sung. It is not read, it's sung. There is what we call Tame Hamikra, right? Meaning the trop or the tunes. Those tunes provide us with the punctuation. They tell us when it's a stop and a start, when there's a pause in the sentence. They tell us when something is enthusiasm or the verb is hesitation. There are all types of meanings to the notes. Anyone who has looked into the works of Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky will know that he very often comments on the meaning of those notes in the Torah in beautiful, uh, in great depth. So, how do, why do you need the oral law? Very simply, you can't read the Torah. 
without the oral law, because you don't know the punctuate. In other words, you don't know how to pronounce the words. And the only way we know is because we have an unbroken chain of tradition of how it is pronounced. Secondly, you don't know the punctuation. How do you know the punctuation? We know it because we have a tradition as to how to read or sing, rather, the Torah, even though there are variations amongst the communities, but there are certain things in common. Esnachta is in every community a semicolon, right? And, you know, Merkaz Tibchasov, Pasuk, and so on and so forth, end of a verse. There are, uh, right, the Shalshelet, hesitation, Kadmava Azla, enthusiasm. All those notes have meanings, and at the minimum, they teach us the punctuation. That is number two. One D, legal definitions. The Torah, has many, many laws. It's a legal text in many ways. It tells you, do this, don't do that. Now, if you have a legal text and you don't define what you are talking about, then it becomes useless. So, for example, the Torah says, don't work on Shabbat. Don't work on Shabbos. So, how do you define work? Well, in physics, what you learnt probably is that work equals... No, that's not in physics. That would be the IRS, right? Uh, work equals force times... W equals F. Oh, good Lord. Okay, force times displacement, the American education system. Okay, W work equals force times distance. Force times displacement would be more correct. So work, according to the definition of a physicist, would be doing this. That is not what is prohibited on Shabbos for the camp, for the tape recorder. I just lifted up the paper. But anyway, the idea here is that you need a definition. You need to define work. Or, for example, the Torah says on the tenth day of the seventh month, what day is that? Tenth day, seventh month. This is not a trick question. Yom Kippur, yes, the Day of Atonement. Anyway, so Yom Kippur, the Torah says on the tenth day of the seventh month. Now, first of all, how do you know when the day starts? If the Torah tells you to fast for a day, when does the day start? You've got to have a definition. Does it start when the three stars come out? Does it start when the sun's down? Does it start at dawn? Does it start when you can first see the first rays of the sun? When does it end? There's all types of definitions. In, in, in every legal system, you have definition of a day. Because if the contract says you've got to do something by this and this date, you've got to have a definition in law as to when that date's over. Do you have, according in, in the United States, you have till midnight of that date, that calendar date. So if you look at bottles, when it tells you about the use-by date, uh, be a good idea to have those on people too. But anyway, but let's say you look at a bottle and there's a use-by date, right? So the use-by date is defined as midnight of that particular uh, calendar date. Jewish law has a definition. So the 10th day of the 7th month, Yom Kippur. What does the Torah say that you're supposed to do on Yom Kippur? No, it does not say that. The Torah says, V'inisem esnafshoseichem, which means you shall afflict your soul. Now, the Torah doesn't define what affliction of the soul is. We don't know what that means. If you just have the written Torah, affliction of the soul could mean reading Russian novels, or it could mean rolling around on thumbtacks, or doing both simultaneously. Please don't try this at home. Right? So, uh, but what does affliction mean? So, the oral tradition, Torah Shabal Peh tells us, affliction means, as someone correctly pointed out, don't eat, don't drink, those would be two. Yes, you are partially correct. Don't worry. Right? So there are two components. To, there's a many components to it. But the definition of affliction is something which we have from the oral law. Even something as simple as don't or uh, don't murder. The Torah says don't murder. That has been translated into many languages. Right? The Torah has been translated into every language known to mankind. There's even a Klingon translation of the Torah. Right, which is problematic because, as you probably know, the Klingons are atheists. So God has to be Jopha, which is great Lord in Klingon. But for the Trekkies here, we'll talk about that later. Right. So the Torah has been translated. There's actually an Ebonics translation of the Torah. Don't murder. Thou shalt not murder. Is don't waste nobody. Right. So, but even if you do translate that, nevertheless, you've got to have definitions to to, to the idea of don't murder. What do you have to do? You have to translate. Or you have to define what is murder, to whom does it apply, right? At what, what stage of life are you considered alive or dead, for example, right? A fetus, is it already considered alive, as, for instance, Christians might say, from the time the egg is fertilized, even if it's in a freezer in an IVF clinic next to the hagen is it considered alive at that point, right, or not, right? What stage does the fetus 
become considered to be a human life. And what is considered death? Death is not a scientific definition. There's a legal definition. Science will tell us what's happening or not happening in that human being. right? However, whether what is happening or not happening is defined as death is a legal, moral judgment. And that is really, you need a legal system to tell you that. So all I'm pointing out is that the most simple laws of the Torah... Even something as simple as don't murder is becomes very complex when you start to apply it. I remember once I was in a situation, I was doing guard duty in a place called Dotan, in the Israeli army. I'm standing at the guard tower facing the road, which is the road from a place called Nablus, which is a, you know, an Arab town and, uh, or a town populated by Arabs, it's a Jewish town, but they took it. Anyway, so Nablus, and as uh, we had an intelligence report that there was a car bomb in the area, general area. So the officer in charge tells me, he says, Becha, you're on the uh, tower facing the road. If a car turns off the road, you put your gun on full automatic and just blow it away. So, um, uh, now, some people's reaction to that would be, oh, cool. But uh, a moral, responsible human being would be now asking the question, which is what I did, uh, which is, uh, well, hold on, what if it's a lousy driver? I mean, Israel's 90% of the drivers are lousy, right? So what if it's a bad driver? What if it's someone who fell asleep at the wheel? Right? I mean, am I allowed to just shoot? What's the, I mean, the halacha, there is halachas about the halacha, Jewish law says, I would be allowed to shoot in that situation. I won't get into the details, but this is a discussion about a fundamental moral law. Don't murder, but you need a lot of stuff behind that. So, if you look at 1F, what I've, what, uh, 1E, what I've pointed out is that the Torah is basically incomprehensible without the oral tradition. You can't read it. You don't know how to pronounce the word. Is it chalav or chalev, yira or yira'e, bamayim or bamayim, right, number one. Number two, you don't know whether it's, no, swimming aloud or no swimming aloud, right? You don't know whether it's slow children crossing or slow children crossing, right? These are things that you don't know. You've got to have punctuation. And third, you've also got to have legal definitions in order to really apply the Torah to life. So, the conclusion we've come to is, that evidently the author either left us totally in the dark, which wouldn't make sense, or he provided us with additional explanations. Those explanations he provided us with are what we call the oral Torah. It's the author's explanations of the written law. In fact, as Ruf Hirsch puts it, it is type of like the relationship between written notes and a lecture. If you've ever been to a class or a lecture, do you guys take notes in class? You don't have to admit this. Right, it's a normal thing to take notes in class. So let's say you're at a class on chemistry, okay, and you are taking notes. Would you write, would you write sodium chloride out in full? No, what would you write? You'd write NACL, N-A-C-L, okay. Would you write gold out in full? No, what would you write? AU, correct. Would you write lead in full? No, what would you write? PB. In other words, you could really, the whole periodic table has abbreviations. And there are also abbreviations for uh, chemical reactions. For, for different chemical reactions have abbreviations. So supposing, let's say for the moment, you've just attended a fascinating class on chemistry. Kivyochel. Right? And after the class, a friend of yours is sitting there at lunchroom reading your notes. And a friend of yours, who's very much into English literature and stuff, comes over and says, you look fascinated by your notes. I said, oh, it was unbelievable. It's best class of the year. And he says, can I look at the notes? I said, sure. He takes your chemistry notes and he starts reading them. Right? Right, etc. And he says, you've been drinking the chemicals? Right, this makes no sense. This is gobbledygook. This is drivel. Right? So what is his problem? He's got two problems. Number one, he didn't hear the lecture. Number two, he doesn't know the shorthand. But let's say he heard the lecture and knows the shorthand. Would your notes become a little clearer to him? Of course, I would say so. If you're using the same shorthand and you went to the same lecture, of course. So now the way I would understand it, as Harif Hirsch puts it, is the Torah Shavich Sav, the written law, the five books of Moses, the Torah scroll, that's the notes to the lecture. The entire lecture is what we call Torah Shaval Peh, the oral law. When did the Jews hear that lecture? Think of it. No. We were in the desert for 40 years, right? The, most of the events in the desert happened in the first year and the last year. So the middle 38 years, what are the Jews doing? This, they, they walk, they've got food taken care of. They've got climate control. What are they doing? Twiddling their thumbs for 38 years? Right? Oh, beautiful sand dune, isn't it, Bob? Yeah. 
looks like the one we saw last week and the week before and the week before and the week before and the week before, right? I mean, how... You know, I mean, there's a limit to the amount of time you can look at sand dunes and admire them, right? Uh, for me, it's about 10 minutes, right? But 38 years, right, even for a total sand dune geek, right, is not going to be the type of thing that will occupy your mind. So what were the Jews doing for, for, for 38 years? The answer given by Reb Or HaChayim, Reb Chaim Ibn Attar, he says we were, we were actually receiving the lecture of Torah. We were getting a lecture on Judaism. The whole of Judaism was being transmitted to us during those 40 years in the desert. It was the ultimate seminar. 40 years of teaching, of learning, and the notes are the five books of Moses. That means if you've heard the lecture and I tell you the notes, you'll know what I'm talking about. But if you didn't hear the lecture and I tell you the notes, you won't know what I'm talking about. If I would go out to someone totally unfamiliar with the Torah and I would tell this person, put a sign between your eyes and front, put a front look between your eyes and a sign upon your arm, what would he do? And if I told you, put a front look between your eyes, right? I mean, what would you do? You'd say, you want to take this outside, mate? Right? Or, I mean, what, what? What would you do? Front look between your eyes. You go to a piercing parlour, like a front look, please, right between the eyes. Oh, sure, put your head in the clamp here, mate. Get the 3 16th of an inch drill bit, and we'll put a front look between your eyes. What does it mean? A sign on your arm, tattoo a Jewish mother on your bicep, right? Booba, right? You could be a redneck and a Jew simultaneously. So what does it mean? The answer is, when I tell you, you have heard the lecture, you are familiar with the oral law. When I tell you, put a sign on your arm and front look between your eyes, what does that mean to you? Probably nothing. But if I say it in Hebrew, you know that that means tefillin. Phylacteries, which doesn't mean anything, right? So, uh, but tefillin, right? Or for example, for example, uh, if I tell you Yom Kippur, the inisem esnafshoseichem, afflict your soul, you know because of the oral tradition, you're members of the club, you know that what that means is don't eat, don't drink, don't wear leather shoes, so on and so forth. That is to say, we have heard the lecture and therefore the notes are clear to us. So the Torah Shavitzav, Torah Shavapeh is a lecture, the whole thing, the whole Torah. And what are the notes? Torah Shavitzav. That answers our first question. And now we come to our second question, which is, surprisingly enough, number two on the outline. So anyway, uh, the, uh, those who don't have the outline, don't worry. Uh, uh, this will not count for the entire uh, mark in the finals. So uh, only 20%. So now, uh, number two in the outline is, why not write it all down? Why did Hashem, why did God choose to transmit so much of it verbally? Why not write everything down? So first, num- number one, 2A. Almost every system of knowledge has an oral Torah. Example, if a person goes to medical school, right, where do they learn? I've asked doctors this many, many times. I asked them, where did you learn more about the practice of medicine, diagnosis of disease, care of patients, first four years of medical school, or when you worked in the hospital as an intern? The answer they almost universally give me is, in the hospital as an intern. Now, that is not mainly book learning, that is mainly learning from, a, an ex, a, that's right, a experience and from a senior senior physician. Or, for example, I ask people in law firms, where did you learn more about the practice of law? First four years in law school or when you worked in summers in a law firm? The answer is a law firm. Anyone here know how to swim? Put up your hand if you know how to swim. Excellent. Put your hands down. Anyone who learned how to swim from a book, please raise your hand. Okay, for the benefit of the MP3 here, no one raised their hand. And I have asked this question literally of thousands of people all over the world. Never! Has anyone who learned how to swim from a book raised their hand? you know why? Because tragically, those who learn how to swim from a book are no longer with us. They cannot raise their hand. They're at the bottom of the pool. Right, you see, there are certain skills. I mean, I, I assume everyone here knows how to tie their shoelaces. You don't still have Velcro shoes, right? Okay, you know how to tie your shoes. When you learned how to tie your shoes, did your parents wait till you could read and hand you a written list of instructions? Here, uh, here's how to tie your shoes. Just follow the steps. Right? I don't think so. That would be a very cruel parent. Right? I mean, can you imagine? I have a friend who used to teach philosophy, Johns Hopkins. He actually had his class do a little um, exercise in which Everyone in the class had to write written instructions of how to tie your shoelace. And then they switched with each other. And then everyone had to tie the shoelace exactly according to the written instructions. 
He says it was, it was a horrific sight afterwards. People were tied to each other. People were swinging from the chandeliers. They had to bring in the jaws of life to cut someone out of the shoe. And it was, it was incredible. Because there are certain things you cannot learn from a book. Life skills, how to live, how to practice medicine, how to practice law, how to live a certain life. You've got to learn that from a human. So a written word lacks something. You've got to have one of the greatest swordsmen who ever lived, probably the greatest, was Miyamoto Musashi, great Japanese swordsman, killed his first person in a duel when he was 13. I guess that's the, um, that's the samurai equivalent of bar mitzvah. So anyway, um, we cut our first pastrami at 13 and he killed us. Anyway, but he has a book called The Book of Five Rings about sword fighting. And it's fascinating, at the end of a number of chapters in the book, he also, he points out, however... There's only a limit to what I can really explain in writing. You've got to go to a master in order to really learn this. And indeed, we find in all areas of knowledge there is oral law. The Torah, granted, on a different level of Kedusha and holiness, but nevertheless, within the human framework, we don't only need a written text. On the contrary, a written text is not enough. You've got to have human contact. You've got to have someone transmitting it to you. That is 2A. 2B, it is portable and compact. Keep in mind, in ancient times, recording information was not easy. If you were a businessman in ancient Rome, you did not have a Blackberry or a Palm Pilot. right? What you had was a large piece of stone and a chisel. So you're walking around like this, <coughs> like that, and you say, so Bob, when are you going to meet? Oh, Maximus, whatever. When do you want to meet? Oh, Ides of March? Okay, fine. And then you take your chisel and go, <coughs> smash it into the block of wood, and it's all in Roman numerals, you know what I'm saying? Right? And if you make a mistake, smash it, go to the quarry, get another one, come back, the guy's gone already. I mean, it's unbelievable. And, you know, and then, what was the great technology? A scroll. I mean, you know, if the Torah is scrolled to the wrong place, Right, and the Gabbai forgot to scroll it to the right place. You could be sitting there, right, in shul for a good ten minutes, going catatonic, while the guys are scrolling the Torah. It's a very, very cumbersome way of doing things, and it's heavy, right? So the fact is that information, the best way to do it is to make it compact, and then have everything else being able to be derived from it. Very similar. There's a program used to be used before Gmail, right? You used to have. If you're sending a long file, a large file in the email, then what you have to do is compress the file, what called zip the file, right? Now the zip file cannot be understood. If you would look at a zip file without unzipping it, you wouldn't be able to understand it. When you have to feed it into a program like Norton Unzip, etc., and that expands the file, now you can understand it. The way I understand the Torah, uh, the written law, and the oral law, the written law is a zipped file, and the oral law is the program which expands and unzips the compressed file of the Torah. It's a very efficient way of doing things, keeping in mind that the Jews have been expelled from almost every country we ever lived in, so to schlep around an entire library would be a little bit of a problem. But to schlep around one book from which everything else can be derived, that's a lot easier. That is 2B. 2C. It is harder to steal and distort than the written word. I mean by that, uh, that the written word has been stolen from us. If you look around the world, people have taken pieces of our Torah, misquoted it, taken it out of context, asked, uh, claimed it as their own. If you would walk around the streets today, if you would ask, not in Monsi, but anywhere else, and you'd ask people, who said, love your neighbor, what do you think most people would answer? That's correct. Most people would say, it's Jesus who said it. The fact of the matter is, we know that it's in the Torah, in Leviticus 19, Vayikra, right? I remember I was speaking in London at a city, uh, I think it was called the City University of London, I think that's what it was called, uh, founded by the great philosopher Jeremy Bentham, who, by the way, is still at the university. He died 200 years ago, but his embalmed body is in a glass case at the front of the university based on his last will and testament that he wanted to remain in his beloved college forever. So this whack job is there in the front, embalmed body, right, and his favourite chair in, in a glass case. It's like crazy. Anyway, England is like that. So, um, so the chaplain takes me to the religion department where I was giving the lecture, and there are posters all over the wall. Ten commandments of Judaism, five, pa- five pillars of Islam, eight paths to nirvana, uh, not the not the rock group, but the religion, right? Uh, Buddhism, and and then all this type of stuff. And I'm looking at three principles of Christianity. I look at the wall. I said, I said to him, "There's a few mistakes on the posters." He said, "I beg your pardon." 
I said a little louder. There's a few mistakes on the post. He said, no, I heard you. I said, what? He said, look, I said, first of all, Judaism doesn't have 10 commandments. We've got 613. We should get a lot more wall space than you've given us here. And he said, what? I said, joking, joking. I said, but secondly, under Christianity, what you've got is one of the great principles of Christianity is love your neighbor as yourself. I said, you know, Judaism said that first. I said, not only that, he said, no, it's in Matthew. I said, actually, it is in Matthew 6, but Matthew 6 misquotes it. Because in Matthew 6, it is quoted as, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, resist not evil. Does it actually say in the Torah, love your neighbor and hate your enemy? No, what's the actual verse? The Posuk says, what's the end of the Posuk? I am God. It doesn't say hate your enemy. Nowhere in the Torah doesn't say hate your enemy. Or contraire. It says, Do not rejoice at the fall of your enemy. But anyway, I said, not only is it originally from our Torah and you've taken it, but you've actually misquoted it and claimed it as your own. That has happened to a lot of the Torah. However, interestingly enough, that has not happened to the same degree to the Torah Shabal Peh, the Oror. You know why? Because when you, when you think something, it's totally yours. No one can take it from you. When you speak it out, now it's a little bit more in the public, uh, in the public eye. People can misquote you, etc. When you write it down, goodbye. When you put it on email, as anyone who is following the Enron scandal knows, don't write it down. No email, memos, nothing. Just keep it verbal. Right? But again, it is less accessible if it's in your mind. And indeed, that was one of the advantages of the oral Torah, which is in as much as the Jews have been in exile for so long, had the Torah been totally uh, being, being totally written down, it will be accessible to the entire world. And that is something which we don't want. You know why we don't want that? Because it is one of the things that maintains the distinctiveness and the exclusivity of the Jewish people. We want to be uh, a nation which is unique. And at, because to fulfill our task, we have to be unique. So the more, the, 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 the less barriers there are, I guess, the more accessible the whole thing is, then the less likely it is to be something which is cohesive and exclusive to the Jewish people. So that's another advantage. 2D. Another advantage is the living Torah and the study ethic. Uh, if you look at the Jewish people, we have an amazing, um, uh, amazing passion for study. Uh, Maybe not in high school, but okay, we do have an amazing passion for study. And you see Jews all over the world waking up early to go to a Dafyomi Shir to learn Talmud every day. You know, Long Island Railroad, 725, I think it is. There's one of the carriages has a Dafyomi Shir on the way to Manhattan. They did a Siyam Ashas, seven and a half, eight years, I think it took them. And they finished us. People go in their spare time to classes on Torah. Books are published on Torah continuously. Jews study. There was a non-Jewish scholar who went to Warsaw before the Second World War, and he was looking for a taxi in Warsaw. So he's in the Jewish area, and he doesn't see, he sees a bunch of horse-drawn carriages, that's what they used as taxis, and there's no drivers, but there's a couple of Jewish kids watching the taxis, watching the horses. So he goes over to one of the kids, and he says, where are the drivers? So a kid takes him into a small shul, small synagogue, and there in the shul, the taxi drivers, the Jewish taxi drivers, have taken off time to study Torah together. This guy was absolutely shocked. I mean, I've heard of taxi drivers taking off time to pray. I've heard of their passengers praying fervently. But the idea that the taxi drivers would take off time to study together is incredible. Can you imagine if you're in New York City, Manhattan, you're outside the New York public, you're looking for a yellow cab, there's no yellow cabs. Instead, you're walking down Fifth Avenue, you see outside the New York Public Library, there's a whole long line of empty yellow cabs. So there's some kid watching the cabs. You walk over to him and you say in your best American English, <clears throat> sup dog. Uh, and, uh, says, Yo. and I say, um, listen, um, I'm not in my hood and uh, my homies are not with me at the moment. Need to get back to my crib. Um, do you think you could possibly direct me to the driver of these conveyances? And um, I... Yeah, I can speak street lingo easily. Anyway, so you go to, and this guy, the guy says, yeah, come with me. So he takes you into the library. And in the library, there is a small room off the main reading room. And there, all the New York taxi drivers are sitting around studying the Constitution of the United States of America together. How likely is this scenario? What probability would you assign to this? Zero. Right, first of all, if the taxi drivers in New York are going to study anything, I think driving would be a good first. Followed, close second, by personal hygiene and English. 
right? Uh, both of these would be important, valuable lessons. But the idea that they'd be taking off time to study the Constitution is unheard of. As Rabbi Victor Miller pointed out, the only people who study American law in their spare time are lawyers, and that's usually in order to get around it, right? But in Jewish tradition, we study the... No offense to any lawyers, right, or future lawyers, right? But in Jewish tradition, we study, and that is an amazing thing. Now, I would suggest that one of the main or prime movers behind this study ethic has been the fact that for so many years the Torah was oral. Because when it's written down, if everything's written down, what do you need to do in order to preserve it? What you need to do is have a nice humidity-controlled library, like a cave near the Dead Sea, right? And a feather duster, right? And basically you've preserved it. No big deal. But if it's oral, that means if it's transmitted verbally, what do you have to do to preserve it? You've got to study it. If you don't study it, well, and actually it's interesting, if you look at shuls all around the world, they have, oh, here we, here we have here too. We have the tablets of the law, the luchos. Now, the luchos in shuls all over the world, I was just in, I was in Australia a week and a half ago, I was in Rome a month ago, and Prague before that, about a month before that, and shuls all over these places, and Budapest, all have round tablets. Is that accurate? What shape were the luchos, the tablets of the law? Well, most of them are Farshim. I think almost all of them are Farshim. Almost all the commentaries say that the tablets of the law were not round, but they were they were square. They were like either rectangular or cubes. I think they said they were cubes. But they were not round. Why do shuls, synagogues all over the world have rounded tops? It's very strange. The answer I heard from my teacher, Moshe Shapiro, is the following. It says this. There's a verse in Mishlei, Proverbs, which says, Kasvein aluach libcho. Write the words of Torah, aluach libcha, which means on the tablets of your heart. So actually, where should the Torah be written? Not only on stone, but the Torah should be written also on the hearts of the Jewish people. So if you look at the rounded tablets, they are designed that way because they're supposed to represent the rounded two chambers of the human heart. As if to say, if you are daydreaming in shul, I know it's inconceivable, but if you would be daydreaming in shul when the chazan is in his third aria of Toscan's opera, whatever, right? So, and you're looking up, you see the rounded things that remind yourself that the Torah is not only meant to be written on stone, but the Torah has to be written on the hearts and minds of the Jewish people. How do you inscribe something on your heart and mind? The answer is by studying it. So that is a fourth advantage. Advantage number five. 5e, necessity of personal contact with transmitters of the tradition. That is to say, if everything's written down, you don't need to have contact with the previous generation. Which is a great shame, because you lose the value of their experience, their life experience, their insights, etc. And therefore, we believe it's an important thing to have a contact with the previous generation. If not everything is written down, in order to know all that you have to know, you've got to go to member of the previous generation, you've got to go to a teacher, to a Rebbe. There's a story told there were two students from uh, Johns Hopkins University, it's a branch of Neri Stroll in Baltimore, and um, they were in the, in the library there, uh, studying Gemara together, studying Talmud together, and a very famous Christian scholar, William Foxwell Albright, I'm sure you've heard of him, a great archaeologist, anyway, so William Foxwell Albright uh, walks by and he hears them speaking something like Hebrew. And, uh, and he, he's familiar with Aramaic and Hebrew. He was a great scholar. And he sees them learning Talmud. He walks over to him and he says, let me ask you guys something. He says, are you too fluent in Aramaic? Can you speak Aramaic? And they said, no, of course not. He says, can you conjugate verbs in Aramaic? They said, con what? And he says, forget it. Right? He says, do you know the origin of the Aramaic language, the words, the roots, the, 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 the background. They said, uh-uh. And he said, well, I don't understand it. He says, I am fluent in Aramaic. I can conjugate Aramaic verbs. I know the origins of the Aramaic language, the sociology of Ar- etc., etc., and I cannot make head or tails of a page of Talmud. What am I missing? And one of them said to him, what you're missing is a teacher. Because in the Torah Shabbat, the oral law, what you need is a tradition, one person after the other. And that's an important advantage. 2F, anti-superficiality. The fact that the Torah is done in such a way means that it has trained us not to look at things superficially. If everything would be written down, you could just read it, oh, okay, next. And that will be it. No effort, no mind involvement, 
No blood, sweat, toil and tears in the words of Churchill. You wouldn't have any of that. What you would have is superficiality. Now, in the Western world, the media trains us to be superficial. Thou shalt not think too much is the basic precept. Right. In other words, everything's got to be fit into a soundbite or into half an hour television program with commercial breaks and so on. Right. It's very, very superficial. Right. Most people I heard from another lecturer, he said in his experience, he has found that two and a half percent of people actually think. The other two and a half percent think they think, but don't really think. And the other 95 percent will do anything rather than think. They'll spend any amount of money. They'll go to any distance. They'll go, they'll buy the latest technology. Just don't make me think. Right, that's very, very dangerous. So, what we want, what God wants, what the Torah wants, is that we should think. So the Torah is done in such a way that really, we all know the secret. I don't mean that stupid book, but I mean the secret that, what is the secret? The secret is that when you look at the Torah, the superficial is not going to be true. What's going to be true is the deeper understanding, the better meaning. If you don't have questions, that's a sign you don't understand. Right? If you do understand it, you're probably going to have questions. And those questions are now a portal into a deeper level of understanding. And the more, and then you'll have another question, you get to a deeper level. And that is what the Torah encourages through the way it is, it is, uh, written. Uh, or not written for that matter. 2G, feedback. It's the Rumbam's idea. He says there's feedback. If everything's written down, there's no feedback. What do I mean by that? If I write a book, which I did, right, you read the book, I don't have feedback, I don't know if you understood it. Right, you read the book, who know, am I, am I supposed to know? You read it, you say, oh yeah, that's interesting. And then next, right, but if I am speaking to you personally, or even in a class, I can look at your face, I can usually tell, did he understand me, did he not? If it's a private conversation, there's feedback, I can say, what did I just say? Repeat it back to me. There's, when it's a human interaction, there's feedback. Feedback's very important because that means there can be a check and balance as to whether you understood something correctly. Finally, there is the Tai Chi principle of the oral law. Uh, this is the Medrash Shmuel, beginning of ethics, Pirkei Ovis says this. I, I didn't put the Maramokam down there, but if those who are interested, look at the Medrash Shmuel in the first Mishnah of, second Mishnah of Pirkei Ovis. Uh, yeah, first Mishnah of Pirkei Ovis. But he says the following. Anyone know what Tai Chi is? Tai Chi, tai chi is a what? It's actually more accurately, it is a form, they have meditation as part of Tai Chi. Tai Chi is actually a Chinese martial art. You often see people doing it slowly as an exercise. You ever see people doing this type of stuff, right? Yeah, you've seen that, that type of, right? It's a, that's Tai Chi. It's a martial art, Chinese martial art. They do it slowly, it's a good form of, it's a good form of relaxation and exercise, etc. Now, um, so, there's a Tai Chi class, there's a thing called a Tai Chi turn, where basically your feet are planted fairly firmly and you, I just swivel side to side. I'm just gonna move to, you just swivel side to side. It's just a tight turn. It's very relaxing, you know, uh, if you do it, you know, less than 2,000 times. And uh, so anyway, there's a class of there's a class guys learning Tai Chi, and the master is teaching them to do the Tai Chi turn, right? And one of them says, excuse me, master, but what's the purpose of this turn? So the master said, I'll say it in Chinese first, to change not to stay the same, now I'll translate, it's in order to change enough to stay the same, Right? To change enough to stay the same. And he says, what are you talking about? He says, well, what I mean is the following. If someone pushes you, right, normal reaction is to push back or to stiffen your body. In which case, if he's stronger than you, you'll fall or get hurt. Or, at the worst, at the best case scenario, you're, you're off balance. Because if, if, if he's pushing you this way, you push forward. If you're standing with your feet together, you're pushing forward, you're off balance. He says, so what's a Tai Chi turn is, he pushes you, you swivel with it. Right? And when you swivel with it, now who's off balance? The guy doing the pushing. Now, you can combine that with a hand behind the neck and a knee in the face. Right? But the main principle here is that what you've done is you've changed enough to stay the same. Right? Changed enough to stay the same. Now, the Medrash Shmuel says one of the ideas of the Torah not being completely written down is to give the possibility for the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court in the various generations, to actually be flexible, to have some flexibility to change the things enough so that we can stay the same. What's an example of that? So if you look in the Torah, what's the educational system described in the Torah? What type of school is described in the Torah? Warning, this is a trick question. What type of school is described in the Torah? Correct. Right? There are no schools described in the Torah. Right? Before you start cheering, what it does say in the Torah is homeschooling. Right? Right? Which means, who is supposed to teach you? Your dad. Right? You're supposed to, right? Your, your parents are supposed to teach you. However, that system wasn't working. 
You know why? Because in the time of Yeshua ben Gamla, we had just experienced the Roman invasion, destruction of the temple. There was a lot of poverty. There were many orphans. There was a lot of displacement of people, etc. And that means that the system was not working. We couldn't transmit Torah in the way that it was being... Pro- so Yeshua ben Gamla made a huge and radical change. You know what the huge radical change was? He established schools. But the, the Gemara says, had it not been for him, the Torah would have been forgotten. I would say Yeshua ben Gamla was a Tai Chi master. He changed enough to stay the same and gave a knee in the face of assimilation. Right? And another example would be in more recent times, Sarah Schneerer, who, who created, right, and fought, was the initiative for the women's schooling system known as Beis Yaakov. So again, there is an idea of flexibility there because it is not all written down. So the Sanhedrin, the courts, have a certain level of flexibility, enough change to stay the same. And now we come to our third question, third and final question. How do you know the message was not distorted? So, first of all, uh, this is the stat, this is the way you ask it. You know, we have a game, this game used to play in school called Broken Telephone. I know in America that probably means vandalizing the public phone. But in civilized countries, broken telephone means where you have kids in the class, the teacher whispers something to the first kid in the line, the kid whispers it goes down the line, and then the last kid will say out loud or write down what they heard. What do you call that in America? That game? You ever had that game where you pass it down the line in elementary school? You call it broken telephone as well? Wonderful. Okay. So in England they call it Chinese whispers. In Australia we call it broken telephone. In Philadelphia I believe they call it telephone. Right. So anyway, uh, that is the, that's the game. Now, anyone who's ever played this game will know what happens after the message has been passed through 10 students. You have no clue what the original message was. Exactly. It's totally distorted. Right. The teacher says, you know, pink elephants don't fly. Some random message. You know, by the time it gets to the 10th kid, the message is, shoot Dumbo, he's gone rogue. Right? So, uh, what you have to do is, you have to think about this a bit. Uh, so people ask, okay, so God tells Moses, Moses transmits it to the Jews, it's orally, verbally passed on for, th- for 1,500 years until Judah the prince wrote down the oral law in the form of the Mishnah. So for 1,500 years, people are saying, pass it on, mate. Eh? Right, and you pass it on. I mean, what's going on? How could it not be distorted? So there's a few points. 3A, thousands of chains. Think about this carefully. If instead of having only one line of children in the class, let's say you have 10 students in the class, you transmit the message through the one line, so you have a high probability of distortion. But let's say in my classroom I had 100 children, and I divide them into 10 groups of 10, and I give the same message to the leader of each group. And then I ask the last person in each group to write down what they heard. Will I increase my chances of knowing the original message or decrease? I will increase my chances. You know why? Because even if there is distortion, it's not necessarily going to be the same distortion. And you can apply a statistical screening to the messages at the end. I'll give you a simple example. Let's say the message is A. I'll give you a message. A, B, C, D. What did you hear? A, B, C, D. Now, so let's say I have 10 groups of 10. So I said one group hears A, B, C, D. They transmit that accurately. Another group hears, right, the only thing they've ever heard from an adult is ADHD. So he passes down ADHD. Right, and they write down ADHD. And then you've got another kid whose parents are old-time rock and roll fans, and he hears ACDC. Right, that's all he hears. Right, so now, and then some other kid who has never heard the beauty and elegance of an Australian accent, the little moron thinks I said I, B, C, D instead of A, B, C, D. Right, whereas I clearly said A, not I. So now, he says I, B, C, D. Or, then you've got a kid who's German. You know, so he says A, B, 3, D. Because C and C is basically the same thing in German. You know what I mean? Right, so, so you've got, so now, uh, however, what you'll do is at the very end, you'll be able to look at, you'll have a chart. And on the chart, you'll note that 9 out of 10 said that the first letter was A. And 8 out of 10 said the second letter was B. And 7 out of 10 said the third letter was C. And 8 out of 10 said the fourth letter was D. What was the message? A, B, C, D. So we have the same situation. How many lines of transmission are there of the Torah Shabal Peh? Until it was written down by Yehuda Anossi, Jude the Prince, in 270 to 300 of the Common Era, how many lines of transmission do we have? Was there only one? Was it like a secret? 
Only one family knew the whole Torah. No, everyone transmitted it. Right? It was thousands of chains transmitting it. Even today, there are people, my, my guess is there are some of your mothers who, I'm sure many of your mothers keep Shabbos. Right? And they probably, a lot of the laws of Shabbos, they probably learnt from their mothers. And their mothers learnt it from their mothers and all the way back to Miriam at Mount Sinai. The making of challah and the taking of challah and many, many things that we do, we actually have known from Torah Shabbat even to this day. There are certain elements of kashrus which are still almost entirely oral, transmitted person to person, like nikur of chalev, the uh, removal of certain forbidden fats, removal of the sciatic nerve, the gidanasha at the back of the animal, something which requires a lot of hindsight, but aside from which it also requires an oral tradition, that is still done today through oral transmission. So that is number one. Number two, the message is ingrained in the receiver since the cradle. When do you start learning about Torah Shabbat? When do you start learning Torah Shabbat Peh? When do you start learning the oral law? The answer is as soon as you open your eyes. A little baby, she gets brought home from the hospital, right? And, uh, you know, she's lying in the crib, right? And then she sees, she notices these things like candles, right? And she hears people saying good Shabbos or Shabbat Shalom. And then she smells this awesome thing called challah. And then someone puts her finger in her mouth with sweet wine. She's saying, oh, this Shabbos thing is awesome. Right? And basically, she is now learning about Shabbos. She hasn't, she doesn't know how to read yet. She cannot speak yet. Right? But, an infant, but this infant is learning and absorbing the Torah life and the idea of the oral law. So it's ingrained in you since the cradle. It's a lot harder to distort. Two, uh, sorry, 3C. It's a logical system. It can be reconstructed using its rules. That is to say, it is not a, it's not like a random series of numbers. If I give you a random series of numbers, if I give you some totally random series of numbers, uh, created by shining laser light through a lava lamp or whatever, and, uh, you know, uh, with a, some type of, you know, or light from the stars, some type of random generation of numbers, and you forget a number, I often have this. You know, people will phone me. And you always have these annoying cell phone messages. Hi, Rabbi, really slow. Hi, Rabbi, I met you four years ago at a lecture in Omaha, Nebraska. And I was sitting in the back left row and there are 200 people there. And I was wondering if you remember me because I want you to have, I'm, you know, I'm on Rome, so I'm paying for this, right? And then at the end, it says, anyway, if you could please call me back, my number is, right? Suddenly the medication kicks in and it's just like, whoa, you know, that's it. And I can't get the number. So I can hear some of the numbers, but if you forget a number, you are lost. You've got to dial eight wrong numbers usually before you get the right number. So, but what if it's a logical progression of numbers? What if it's a arithmetic or geometric progression of Fibonacci sequence, etc.? Even if I forget one of the numbers in the sequence, could I reconstruct it using its rules? Of course, we have the technology. We can rebuild it. Right? So, the Torah also is of a similar genre. It is logical. That means things which are broken, distorted, you can actually figure out using the rules of exegesis and the logical rules of the Torah. 3D. Centrality. If the message is central, you tend not to forget it. Things which are trivial to you, you forget. Things which are central to your life, you don't forget as easily. The Torah is very central to our lives. E. There are written references. The Torah, the prophets, the writings. There were written, people could write private scrolls of the Torah. They could write private editions of it. There was just no public edition. No universal edition. But you could take notes. Also, 3F, there was review and mnemonic devices. I once asked a student of mine in Israel... I said, how does he envision the transmission of the oral law? So he said, oh, it goes something like this. Some rabbi is dying. And he's on his deathbed and he calls over his top student. He says, Shloimele, kip. Right, so Shloimele comes over and the rabbi says, I've got to tell you the oral law now. So the student says, now? He says, yeah, let me get a pen and paper. He says, hello, oral. Right, he goes, oh, I'm sorry, man. Right, so he says, okay, he tells him the entire oral Torah. Now Shlomo waits till he's on his deathbed, right, till he gets Yosela. Yosela, I'm going to tell you the oral law now, right? So, of course, is that how it happened? That's ridiculous. That's not how it happened. How do you, you teach it many, many times. There's review. There's mnemonic devices. We use, you know, in the ancient world, before palm pilots, etc., people actually used something called their memory. People actually memorize things. In fact, they memorize large amounts of information. When I was younger, 
in the 1900s, uh, I used to, uh, I, I used to remember many, many phone numbers because we didn't have speed dial when I was a kid. We had these rotary dial phones. You've probably seen them in museums or a science center. They're rotary dial, I remember we was at someone's house. They had a rotary dial phone. It was like a retro chic type thing. And one of my kids looked at and says, cool, what type of phone is that? I said, it's an old one. And he says, but how does it work? I show him. He says, whoa, that's so cool. I said, they all used to be like that. But when you have rotary dial, you can't do speed dial. See, I have to actually remember numbers. Now, I just remember that my wife is one, and the office is two, and so on and so forth. I don't even remember the number anymore. Someone asked me, what's your wife's cell phone number? I said, I don't know. So, uh, dial one, see if it works. So, we remember things very, very poorly today. But, in ancient times, people used a lot of techniques to remember things, and indeed our sages used those techniques as well. Rhymes, and tunes, and mnemonic devices. Finally, 3G... There is the inertia of a whole society. When the Torah was indeed oral, keep in mind, most Jews lived in two places, Israel and Babylon. And the ruling, the Jews were ruled by Jews in Israel. And even in Babylon, we had a lot of autonomy in which the Babylonian government allowed us to rule ourselves internally using Jewish law, which means what was the law of the land? Halacha, Jewish law is the law of the land. It's very hard to forget the law of the land if that's what is the enforced law of the government. You know what I mean? You get someone doesn't, you know, someone's baking on Pesach, right? They're going to have SWAT teams around the house in ancient times. You're going to say, come out with the bread in front of you. Don't lift it up. It's a Kenyan. Just kick it. Whatever, you know. So, but, but there's going to be, you know, you could be driving along and the police officer pulls you over and says, excuse me, sir, but is that a McDovid's wrapper? on the uh, seat beside you. He said, yes. And I see you're drinking a milkshake. I said, mm, yeah. And he said, could you please breathe into the metalizer? <laughs> this is five hours, 45 minutes. Contra that's okay. I'm going to let you off with a warning now. Right? Uh, but, uh, you know, I don't know if this has actually happened. But what I am pointing out is, when there is law enforcement, and that's the law of the land, and there's an inertia of an entire society, country, state, which is doing the same thing, it's a lot harder to forget and distort. So that concludes question number three, which is, was the message distorted? And I think we have some very good security mechanisms here that ensure that it wasn't. Finally, we have another three minutes. So just to run briefly through, there are some external evidence of the antiquity and uh, how widespread the Torah Shabal Peh, the oral law was, even before it was written down. First of all, there was a uniform acceptance of basic principles, even by opponents of the oral law, like Karaites and Sadducees. There are artifacts like mikvahs and tefillin that actually predate the Mishnah. There are tefillin that go back 2,100 years. There are mikvahs that go back 2,300 years. Now, mikvah, all it says about mikvah in the written Torah is, however, a pit, a spring, and a collection of water shall be pure. There are hundreds of laws of the mikvah. The mikvahs found in Masada, the mikvahs found in Herodian, the mikvahs found in Jerusalem, all of them conform to the code of Jewish law in the 17th century, which is pretty amazing because these mikvahs were built even before the Mishnah was written down. The Dead Sea Scrolls relate a lot of information of that although it was a breakaway sect, they had a lot of communication with the rabbis and they shows a lot of knowledge of practices of the oral law that we take for granted today. The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Torah done by Greeks uh, as opposed to the one uh, Togamah Shivim done by the sages, often translates things in the Torah in accordance with the oral law even when they're against the simple literal translation of the text and I've got a couple of examples there. The prophets, we find, refer to ideas in the oral law, and they refer to them as a given. So, for example, in the book of Jeremiah, Yumiah refers to the prohibition against carrying and commerce on Shabbos. But if you look in the Torah itself, it doesn't explicitly forbid carrying and commerce. This week's parasha, but it doesn't explicitly forbid it, right? It is something which we learn by the oral tradition, yet the prophets accepted that as a given. There is a consistency and universality of the Jewish calendar, even though it's quite complex. But Jews all over the world, for thousands of years, have had a consistent calendar, all based on the oral law. You know, there's an amazing uh, 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 genetic test that was done to Kohanim, men who claim to be descended from Aaron. Any Kohanim here? So if a Kohen is here, you claim to be descended from Aaron, brother of Moses, on your father's side, going back 3,200 years. That's quite a claim. 
So a uh, fellow by the name of um, Skaretsky, uh, and I have the uh, reference here, Nature Magazine, Volume 385, did a test of the ge- male genes, male chromosomes of male Kohanim from England, uh, Israel and the United States and found that a huge percentage, over 80%, had what he calls the Kohen modal haplotype, which is type of like a genetic mutation, nothing dangerous, but that seems to indicate that they have common ancestry on the male side. Not only that, but the cytochrome C uh, mutation rate, which is type of like the g- genetic clock of DNA, seems to indicate the common ancestors lived about 3,000 years ago. So it's not like you look in a microscope and on the DNA it says Aram was here, but it is very close to that. And finally, we have Cholent. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with the famous stew uh, that Jews have, Shabbos lunchtime. Well, Cholent is an amazing food. Uh, first of all, as you probably know, every Jewish community has some form of cholent. Some call it sechina, some call it orissa. In Morocco it is made with cracked wheat and garlic and beef and napalm. Uh, in um, uh, India it is made with rice and curry and chicken. Uh, in Poland it's made with potatoes like everything else in Poland. And there are different things, you know, basically different, and you know, even different families have different recipes and I don't want to get into the sordid details about the ketchup controversy. But there are different re- what makes Cholent, Cholent? So the answer is, given in Natural History magazine by a food anthropologist, points out, he says Cholent, and he's right, Cholent originated as a protest food. Protest food. In other words, the Karaites, who, people who do not believe in the oral law, they looked at the verse in Parshas Vayakel, which says, don't light a fire on Shabbos. You know how they understood it? You know that they have a fire burning on Shabbos. So when it comes to Friday evening, the guy, Karite husband would say to his wife, honey, it's almost Shabbos. Did you blow out the candles yet? Right? Because you can't have, and you'd obviously have to eat cold food, sit in the dark and freeze. So Jews developed a dish which would prove we believe in the oral law because we have the fire on from Friday afternoon and have the thing cooking which is permitted as long as you don't do anything to it. So we eat cholent as a protest food. So Jews were sitting around in Galicia 300 years ago, one side to the other, dude, I've got some really chilled cholent here, man. Right? And they'd be drinking or eating or smoking the cholent in order to indicate that they, what they're saying is, I am not a carer, I believe in the oral tradition. So that the oral tradition is inscribed not only in the Jewish mind and the Jewish heart, but it's also inscribed in our very arteries. Thank you very much for listening.